Well, good morning. Turn with me again to the book of Colossians as we continue our study. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Before and after pictures can be interesting, right? If you're, if you're uh, selling diet products in a commercial, you always see the picture of this person before and the dramatic change that uh, whatever it was uh, made. Sometimes I've, uh, I've seen ladies, especially, post before and after haircut pictures. And so, you know, here's the before and here's the after, and frankly, I don't always know what the difference is myself, but whoever comments on it says how amazing it is, this after, and kind of wonders just how bad it was before, so, before and after. What our passage is teaching us today is that our life should be radically transformed, Because of our new position, our new identity, our new union with Jesus Christ. Last time in our study, we began in chapter 3, which is basically the hinge of the book of Colossians. Which shows us that since we are connected to Christ, we should think different. Verse 1, since you have been raised with Christ... Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So there should be a complete transformation of how we think. So we are different because we think different. We think differently about our relationship with Christ. We think differently about ourselves. We no longer have to live for the approval of others because we are living for the approval of Christ. So everything is made new because you have been raised. We are now spiritually alive. What Paul moves into next in this letter to the Colossian church is a description of that which must go. So in verse 5, he begins with this uh, kind of shocking statement, put to death. Put to death, and a list of sins ensues. Sexual immorality issues, greed. You look down there, you see anger issues, language, lying. Put to death. So in this new life, he says, this is, this is what it's going to look like, but some things have to go. That's the focus of this paragraph. Next week, we'll be looking at what now must be infused into this new life that we have in our new identity. But the point is that we cannot enjoy our new identity in Christ unless we address these areas of sin. Put to death, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put to death. Kill it. They have to die. These are, these are parts of our old earthly sin nature. We have a new status now. 
on your wedding day, your status changes. So you put on a ring to uh, evidence that change of status, and the ring indicates that your days of dating are over. You, you must put to death the single you. And the ring tells anybody you meet that that's over. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. Because now you have the privilege of committing yourself to this one and only and finding uh, love and acceptance and, and joy and security in this one person's love. That's the, that's the goal of a good and godly growing marriage. But it's only possible if you reserve your romantic affections for your one and only. To enjoy your marriage, that means you have to put to death flirting, dating, lusting. You will only enjoy this new relationship if you put to death the way you may have thought previously. And likewise, when we put our faith in Christ, we will only enjoy our new union in Christ when we put to death the things that injure, damage, undermine that new relationship. That's really why these sins are unacceptable, because we can read these, this list of sins like, oh yeah, here we go, Bible tells us all the things we shouldn't do. But are we thinking about why those things have to go? Why we have to address sin throughout our life and deal with it with, with, with a, a finality? It's because it will mar our enjoyment of the new relationship we have. So the first, uh, verse 5, lists five sins. The first three and maybe four are sexual sins because one of the first ways that we evidence our desire for holiness is through sexual purity and following God's design for that. Sexual immorality, the first term, refers to sexual acts. Uh, Sexual intimacy is reserved for a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment called marriage, period. Genesis 1, uh, we reveal, we, we discover from, first of all, the creation account, what God's plan is. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. A couple of observations. First is that he created male and female. There is no gender confusion in the Bible. Uh, God's biological creative work settled that. But notice also that we were created that way in God's image. Very, very important to understanding sexuality, for one thing, because we are not like the animals controlled by instinct or hormone. We have the image of God, which is the ability to choose and to know morally what is right and wrong. So we're entirely different in that sense. Then God also designed, we find as we continue to read the creation account, um, God's purpose for marriage, and his purpose was oneness. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
I think this one flesh relationship is uh, includes sexuality, but it, it is broader even than that. When I uh, work with couples in premarital counseling, I often uh, draw a, a triangle. Uh, the triangle has three layers. The foundational layer, this, this is to illustrate our unity in marriage, the foundational layer we could call spiritual unity. And that is that two people, to have true unity or oneness, need to be together spiritually, that both are both believers in Christ, but also equally committed to that relationship with Christ. That is the foundation of a strong marriage. The second layer, spiritual, we then look at emotional oneness, emotional or relational oneness, is where most of life is lived. That's where uh, we find that we enjoy each other. It's also where we must relate on the myriad of things we, we do in a relationship. But then the, the top layer, spiritual, emotional, or relational, and then the physical. And so it becomes, sexuality and romance becomes a, the way that we express the oneness that God has designed for our marriage. Mankind has, of course, uh, perverted this plan throughout history, but the Bible speaks very frankly, doesn't it, of sins of extramarital sex and the sin of homosexuality, anything outside of his plan. Our culture, we know this, has ignored God's word and sought to normalize what the Bible calls sin. But if we are made new in Christ, we have to be all in on the moral issues. And it's interesting, that's where he starts. So put to death sexual immorality. The second term goes from the acts of sin to, in a sense, broadening it to anything that violates biblical sexual morality. Impurity, it's a the catch-all phrase, any, anything that perverts God's plan. And it would be nauseating and I think very inappropriate even to try to list the kind of things that might be involved in that. The third term is lust or passions or desires. It's what happens in our minds because, remember, that's where everything starts. If you go back to verse 1 and 2, set your minds on things above. So we have to protect our minds morally first. That's why pornography has to go. Trashy novels have to go. Much entertainment needs to be eliminated because of our minds and we protect our minds and thus protect our marriages and thus honor our identity in Christ. It's all part of the same picture that we must have single-hearted devotion and put our affections on things above. Verse 5, or the 6 then, gives us a serious warning, sobering warning. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. A very simple, blunt way of saying, this is not who you are. 
What you see described in verse 5 is not who you are. And in fact, it is because of those kinds of things that the wrath of God is coming. Now, wrath of God is coming on who? Who is the wrath of God coming upon? Believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers. We have, by God's grace, been spared the wrath of God. But he's saying, if you realize that God's wrath is upon those who have rejected Christ, why would you continue living that lifestyle? It's not who you are. You're raised with Christ. You're clothed with his righteousness. You're saved, forgiven, and approved by the grace of God. And it would be a horrible miscalculation to think of the grace of God as somehow permission to wallow in these sins when in fact the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. It gives us the uh, power to clean house on these things. Fourth term, evil desires or sinful cravings. This can include but is not limited to immoral things. It's anything Addictive, anything controlling in our life. It can include, uh, obviously, substances uh, such as illegal drugs, etc., or those used illegally. It can include anything that's uh, culturally acceptable, in fact, even glorified, like alcohol or food to excess. Addictions, anything that controls us. What's the problem with that? It's not just that it controls us and it hurts us and damages Whatever it does to us, it is a violation of our identity in Christ and it will mar and injure our single-hearted devotion to Christ. So it's spiritual infidelity to be controlled by anything that distracts us from things above. And almost to make his point, Paul Uh, moves in the end of verse 5 away from moral issues to one of the most common and most excused desires. Greed, he says, which is idolatry. Or we could say materialism. Greed, which is idolatry. Why Why would greed be idolatry? It's because it so easily replaces and distracts us from things above. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And there is nothing that is more uh, common, more uh, continual in our life than our desire for more and better. So the idolatry has nothing to do with you know, having Buddha in your basement kind of a thing, but it's about the stuff. Nothing's wrong with material things. Nothing's wrong with nice material things. It is when they replace, the, the desire for them replaces our love and commitment and affection for Christ. In fact, the very word greed in the Greek language is the desire for more. The desire for more. So it's not how much you have. It's a it's a it's an equal opportunity sin. It's because it's about how much we want, and it can always be a little bit more. So put to death the desire for more. The opposite of greed is contentment. So are we are we pursuing contentment? Because the issue will again begin in our 
mind. Set your minds on things above and not on things of the earth. So let's just do a little bit of an exercise of asking ourselves some probing questions in this area of greed or discontented thoughts. So see if you recognize any of these thoughts. We, we sometimes can, can dismiss our, our greed problem because we aren't thinking at a, at a, at an inner level. My friend has one, so I deserve one. If I can afford it, it's okay to buy it. Hmm. I can't afford it, so I'll overwork or overborrow to get it. My wife, my husband buys things in excess, so I can buy things in excess. <laughs> These little mental games of deals and trades we could make in marriage. Since I place greater value on people who are wealthy, I need more to feel valued. When we perceive greater value based on money and others, no wonder we think that way about ourselves. I'm too poor to get what I want, so I just resent those who have what I want. Still the same issue. Or this one. I'm too tight to buy what I want, so I just judge those who have what I want. Even if I could afford it, but they bought it, and why are they so... Do you see how inside we are, we're always processing a value, a worth of material things. So he says, put to death greed, which is idolatry. In, in, uh, in a number of passages that, that Paul addresses this in the New Testament, um, he, if, if that's the negative, you know, see the red flags, here's, here's, here's the, the replacement issue of focusing on Christ, the spiritual freedom of contentment. He tells Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. This has real value, he says. Contentment is the true value. And in the same context, it's all about this contentment. But as for you, O man of God, he tells Timothy, flee these things. He's referring to the the love of money. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Do you see what he's done? He says... Flee the, the desire for things here and pursue things above because contentment frees us to focus on our character because our, our desires have been transformed. Similarly, Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think this is especially drawn or, or addressed to those who are struggling. You're worried about stuff. He says, do you realize that sometimes our financial concerns are allowed in our life so that we would focus on the only one who can truly take care of us? So contentment frees us to trust God's provision. It sets our minds on things above. Or again, similarly, Philippians 4, I've learned the secret, Paul says, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Because Paul's uh, financial life looked like this as he was dependent on the support of others. And then he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That verse is sometimes, you know, quoted a little bit flippantly and very out of context. It's like, you know, I can win the Super Bowl because God gave me the strength or what it might be. The context is... I can be content because Christ gives me the strength to be content. 
Contentment frees me to appreciate God's presence. That I may not have this or I may have this. That doesn't really matter because those are earthly things. I'm going to set my mind on eternal things above. Contentment frees me to do that. So when do our thoughts become idolatrous? It's when, or about material things, it's when they begin to dominate and replace that which is eternal. Our old identity, the before, says we have to have things. Our new identity in Christ, here's the voice of Christ who said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added to you as well. So we have choices of where we will set to our, our, our minds and we must put to death these things. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So don't imitate those who reject Christ. It's normal for everybody else to think that way. Don't imitate them. Purity and contentment are after Christ. We would expect everybody else to think differently. Verse 8 or 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. And he starts a fresh list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You used to live like this. And don't be surprised. Sometimes we spend all of our effort attacking those in the world, unbelievers, who think this way. How are they supposed to think? Let's not be surprised at that. Let's be surprised when we see it in our own lives. Put these things off. Get rid of. The terms Paul uses here in verse 7 and in verse 8, and actually next week in our study, again in verse uh, 12, Paul uses a variety of, of Greek terms for dressing and undressing. So he says, the, this isn't really who you are, but it's, it's, what you, what, it's what you're wearing. It's almost as if he understands that, that, that the, our identity is secure in Christ. It's who we are. But what are we dressing ourselves with? Those are the issues. So get rid of, put off, it's, it's a, discard this garment. My dad once told me about, uh, when he was younger, a skunk got under our, our house. He lived there when he was younger. And uh, it became his job to get it out. There's a, there's a live skunk under the, in the crawl space area. And you can probably guess what happened as a result. And uh, he said the only way to get rid of it, he said, I, he burned those clothes. Get rid of it. These are things incompatible with your new nature, so throw them in the burn barrel, light the fire, get rid of them. The first is a number of anger sins. You know, the very first, I think, sin you'll notice in, in babies is anger. So I'm a little bit worried about my new granddaughter I went to visit last week in Arizona, just a few days old, and she seems to have anger issues. When the food isn't there, she's angry. 
a little bit tired, angry. A diaper situation that she caused. (laughs) And she's angry. I think they'll be okay. The two-year-old sister seems to be doing pretty well, so... Anger is our attitude towards circumstances and people that somehow violate something self-centered in us. I, uh, some of my stories are coming from conversations this past week. I spent a couple of days in Kansas as well last week with my brother and sister. Um, my brother told me a story about a neighbor we had a neighbor across the, the road, just about an eighth of a mile down. And uh, one time, Dad heard this neighbor scream. And uh, Dad could hear it from our farm, so he I don't know if he ran or if he jumped in the pickup and went over there. And, and there was our, our neighbor looking down into the well. Dad says, what happened? He says, I dropped my crescent wrench. From where dad was, it sounded like it was a child or something, but it's a crescent wrench. In contrast, I think I've shared before uh, stories that Priscilla and her siblings tell about her dad, uh, an unusually calm man. But Priscilla remembers one time after a nighttime hailstorm, dad goes out to look at the crops. And comes back for breakfast and mom says, well, it's probably a total loss, he said. Sat down and prayed and ate breakfast. <laughs> it's a loss. Or her brother tells of a time they were working on some equipment and a jack slipped and cut a, a big gash, I believe it was in his leg. Dad looked at it calmly and said, well, I guess we better go to the doctor. <laughs> He was blessed with a calm personality, but I think ultimately it was evidence of a deep trust in God about these things. Because the reason we overreact or react in anger is always, first of all, self-interest. Somehow I've been offended, it's affected my pride, it's, it's, it's something about my greed because this was an expensive wrench that fell or whatever it was. But I think as Christians we again have to probe and go to the internal issues. And as Christians, could it be that we're actually angry at God when we're angry? Because as we understand God's sovereignty over all things, control over all things, isn't that really what makes us mad is that somehow he has allowed, not prevented this person or these circumstances and so to set our minds on things above would be to be so focused on his all-controlling goodness in our life that we can pause at those moments of emotional feelings to say, no, that God has allowed this in my life too. The third term is malice. Malice is a form of anger or bitterness, but it's, it's a heart issue directed at people where someone has caused us harm or hurt or insult or offense, and so we truly wish them the worst. 
As a result, maybe that's why the next two sins are about language, because what is in the heart usually comes out. So we slander. Slander is to speak ill of someone who has made us angry or who, for whatever reason, we dislike. Slander does not mean that it is something that is untrue. Slander can be true or untrue, but it's putting someone down by telling somebody else. And so especially if somebody has hurt, harmed, or offended us, it's like the the, the next confidant we run into is going to hear how awful this person is. Burn it, he says. Just put it away. Put it away with all those those old clothes of the old nature. By the way, as we think of anger sins, we have to realize anger itself is not sin. Anger is an emotion. And so it would be normal to feel uh, the emotion of anger. Someone cuts us off and almost cause an accident, but it's what we do with that where the sin enters in. So we need to be aware to to separate the emotion from the sin. The emotion is is normal, if you will. Obscene, filthy talk. Still hanging on to any words from the before? And... uh, if you find yourself all of a sudden saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know there were children here, <laughs> probably tells you that didn't need, need it at all. If you find yourself telling a joke and you realize, you know, that probably really isn't so funny. I like to picture that, the, that Jesus and the disciples laughed a lot. They spent three plus years together everywhere. Don't you suppose, I mean, if you spend that much time with good friends, a lot of funny things happen. I, I I guess it helps me a little bit if, if, to try to imagine if, if Christ would chuckle at what I think is funny. Finally, verse 9. Lying. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So it's with this final sin of the list that... Paul is clearly making the connection with between why these things have to be discarded from our lives. And it's because of our new identity in Christ. You're not that person anymore. Don't lie to each other because that doesn't fit. Interestingly, this uh, reference to lying is believer to believer. Don't lie to each other. Do believers do that? And again, to ask ourselves uh, more inner questions, because our conscience would probably keep us from telling bold-faced lies, inventing whole stories, hopefully. But do we exaggerate our stories? Uh, do the estimated numbers we use always just support the impression we want to give for whatever reason? Do we make promises that we know the person wants to hear, but we know it'll never really happen? Integrity. Here's the thing about lying to one another. We're only hurting ourselves because we've already been taught earlier that we're all part of the same body. 
So to deceive someone else in the body of Christ is to create this tension really within us, ourselves. But the bigger issue is now this connection that lying does not fit our new identity. Because Don't lie because you've put off your old self with its practices. You've put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Again, it's terms for dressing and undressing you've taken off. But here's what's interesting. Unlike the earlier statement, which was a command to get rid of, put off, this is not a command. This is actually a reminder of something that has already happened. This is, this is past tense. He's really saying your old nature has already been dealt the death blow. There's a sense in which we have to now put it to death, but it really has been dealt the death blow. So he's going to a more positional truth instead of the application. Your sin nature is already dethroned. The old you no longer has to dominate you. So you don't have to lust. You don't have to slander. You don't have to lie because that nature was crucified at the cross. So you aren't waiting to see if Christ can help you. You are you are assured Christ has already helped you. But then... The second half is that you have put on your new self. Christ really did it on our behalf, didn't he? Your new nature is in place. The old engine, if you will, has been removed. The who you were before you were saved has been removed, and you have received the brand new turbocharged version, the, the ability to obey. You are different than you were. The old you has died. Uh, you, don't have, you don't have to live like the unsaved co-worker, the cranky uncle, the person who puts down everybody. You, you don't have to be that person. That's not who you are. Why? Because your new nature is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. He's describing a process of what we call sanctification, or the Bible calls uh, sanctification, because there is a continual process. So while in one sense he speaks of putting it to death as if it's something you do all at once, we know it's something we do over and over and over and over. It is being removed. It is a process. And so, yes, we, will, we, we bear the responsibility to be aware of our old nature throughout all of our life and continually address it. It's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. It's intentional. Chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. That's what we're doing here today. Because we need continual reminders and the word of God needs to saturate our minds. And as we absorb it, we experience this continual process of renewal. That's why it's so important to know to, to monitor what is going into our minds, because we will set our minds on that which is in our minds. So we need the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. It's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This could at first take us back to Genesis 1, that we were created by God. I think probably he's referring to how we have been newly recreated in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 
Corinthians 5.17, or what he's just said in chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ, you have this new life in Christ. It's being renewed, so there's a constant tension between our sin nature and our new nature. But take courage, take hope, because the the old nature, the, 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 the you is being renewed according to the new nature. It's a, you keep feeding that new nature and you will see a transforming process. And I, I hope you have a, a track record where you see this is what God has done. This is what God has taken out of my life. So I make decisions in the power of the Holy Spirit and he begins to work and, and, and transform me. It's being renewed. I hope that as we've looked at these list of, of things that must go, sins that must go, that you have uh, had a sense of hope that uh, about your future, that you don't have to be enslaved to, to lust and pornography anymore, or uh, you don't have to be enslaved to the bondage of greed uh, you can live pure and contented in your 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 addictions and your temper issues. I hope I hope you see hope there, but just realize that as you embrace that hope, you'll also experience the skepticism from the past. It'll rear its head, and you'll hear you'll hear lies from your own mind. You can never change. Your mother was that way. You've been mistreated or abused, so you're damaged, and you'll never be anything else. Just give it up. You'll always be this way. You're a spiritual failure. Recognizing those voices? That's, those are the lies. This is the truth. That you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. We can become more and more like Christ who gave us that new nature. Though we must stay immersed in that truth. This final verse of the paragraph at first might seem, how does that fit? But it's actually crucial. Uh, Climaxing this, this section about putting off sin. Verse 11. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. He is calling attention to our old identities that we may be clinging to and saying they don't matter anymore because our new identity is Jesus Christ. And he is in all of us no matter what our past identity, no matter what our background was. So he's really saying no race, no religious identity, no family of origin, no economic status matters because Christ has given us all a new identity when he connected us to him and we are in Christ. Four pairs of terms describe old identities. Some of these identities of the past might make us think we can't change. Some of these identities work just as badly because we can have identity in proud areas that make us think we don't have to change. 
All are false. The first one has to do with race. Greek or Jew? Greek means anything, anybody that wasn't Jewish. So race doesn't matter. Drop the label. It doesn't matter because Christ is your new identity. He's in all. Circumcised or uncircumcised, in this case actually describes the same two groups, but now not in terms of race, but in terms of uh, religious ritual. So some in the Colossian church, and I think all these examples are in the Colossian church, some of the Colossians church might say, well, I'm Jewish. I'm God's chosen person, you know. I am special. Doesn't matter. Christ is all an in-haul. You cannot ride on your history of Jewishness, law-keeping, because what matters is your identity is in Christ, and that's your only hope for authentic godliness. Barbarian, Scythian, these actually are not two different groups. This is the same people. Scythians were barbarians uh, by reputation. Scythians through the centuries were people who were known as thugs and savages. They killed and uh, pillaged and took other people's property by force. But uh, the good news is evidently some of them got saved and there they were in the Colossian church. It's as if there were, you know, group of tough gang members that got saved and were part of us here. Wouldn't that be great? And yet they could feel like uh, kind of out of place, spiritually inferior, am I accepted? Christ is all and in all. Doesn't matter. And finally, slaves are free. Slavery was a reality. We'll see later in chapter 3 and beginning of verse 4 where It seems that indeed there were both slaves and masters in the Colossian church. So the economic contrast could not be more vast. It doesn't matter. Because our identity is not in our wealth. Our identity is not in our status. Our identity is in Christ who is all and in all. People don't, labels don't matter. Past doesn't matter. Before doesn't matter. Are you in Christ and are you being renewed in knowledge in the image of the one who created you in your new identity. So, as a church, what we really are is a beautiful mix of messy people. Some may be ashamed of their background, and that's a hindrance. Some may be too proud of their background, and that's a hindrance. All kinds of religious, non-religious Financial variety, educational background variety. doesn't matter. Christ is all and in all. He is our new identity. And so we need to build relationships with one another to encourage us towards things above. Because that's our new identity. But realize as we, as we embrace our new identity, our identity is with Christ, who is the Holy Holy, holy Son of God. And so we desire, we must pursue that our after would more and more reflect the holiness of the one who erased all of our before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as needy people. We've all recognized ourselves 
and uh, sinful tendencies and temptations in that which we've seen we must rid ourselves of. So I pray that we would be so convinced and immersed in your grace that we know there is always uh, confidence to go ahead. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, focus to make decisions that are holy and acceptable to you and it would grow us in our new status, our new position, our identity, our connection to you who saved us by your grace through the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.